0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws.
1: And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height.
0: And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin, talk about stuff.
1: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include popular
0: versus official religion,
1: kickstarting the Dracula dossier,
0: food writing,
1: and Margaret Murray. gasoline hang gliders
0: marshmallows spandex that's the worst shopping list i've ever heard i think you mean the best oh you're talking about mad scientist university i had a feeling we should be talking about atlas games at this point in the show
1: mad scientist university is a card game that's exactly like going back to school
0: right because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element Like
1: trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider.
0: Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one.
1: The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose.
0: Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius
1: in training who's chosen wins the round.
0: That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider.
1: Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free.
0: That's 52 cards, perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico.
1: And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping, too.
0: Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.?
1: Not at all! That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too.
0: Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you.
1: In Mad Scientist University, everyone
0: gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen.
1: And then the TA picks a winner.
0: And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free.
1: Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts?
0: If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com
1: slash Ken and Robin dash MSU.
0: That's atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin dash M like Mike, S like sugar, U like union.
1: Or follow the link in the show notes.
0: Yeah, that's the way to do it.
1: the clatter of dice, the thud of miniatures, or the squeak of exciting transparent plastic miniatures across the gaming table, the sight of Frampton comes alive lowering at you from the entertainment center or the GM's station tells you we have entered a taut and tense segment of the Gaming Hut, because here in the Gaming Hut, we are going to talk about something you're not supposed to talk about, religion! And so, Robin, what aspect of religion are we going to talk about? here in the magical world of games.
0: So I thought we'd look at the way that you can make uh, religions and faiths in your imaginary worlds more nuanced and detailed and more like the uh, faiths of the real world by adding a sort of a a dimension or dichotomy that we often see in the real world, which is that between official religion and popular religion. So if you look at various periods of history and different faiths, you see there are often times when what the elite believe what the priests think are important and what they want their uh, parishioners to do, and particularly to put into action to make them behave, are quite different than what regular folks want to believe about their faiths. And the contradiction between those things can add richness to your uh, game worlds, because it has a couple of dimensions to it. You can see that, oh, well, this is what the priests say about this faith, and this is what the common worshipers say about this faith. Ken, can you think from history of, of examples of that dichotomy of belief? The
1: classic example that's usually given is the Roman empire, where there are the priesthoods that carry on the official worship of the Roman deities that comes down to them from a antiquity that was old in the second century BC when Livy is writing his history of Rome. And he's like, no one knows who set down this form of religion and here's how the gods work. And so Already, by you know the, the 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 sort of the flowering great days of the Republic, there is an official religion that literally no one understands except the priests and by augustus 's time, even the priests don 't understand it because they 're carrying out rites and worshiping gods that no one remembers what they 're the god of, even at this point they 're just we have to placate this guy because if we don 't bad things are going to happen but there 's no popular support for this belief it 's just a it's it 's just a thing that the that the priesthood carries out because they know that it is true or or they they know not to to bank on it. And meanwhile, the people of Rome, in addition to worshipping Jupiter and Mars and all the standard gods, are also bringing in all kinds of other gods from foreign countries, either because they've got slaves in that have those as worship or they capture an idol and they bring it back and it sort of gets a bunch of people's attention or it just blows up out of nowhere like the worship of Bacchus suddenly did in Rome and he was not one of the official... Roman gods, and they had to sort of work out a way to channel popular worship of Bacchus out of conspiring to murder everyone in Rome, and into doing something that had a festival and was part of the civic life of the city. And they had the same thing crop up over and over and again with other cults that came into Rome, like the cult of uh, Kybele, the cult of Isis, and the cult, as it turned out, of Jesus, that were all of them popular elements of religion that were not part of the official Roman religion.
0: Right, and christianity also you know which is a, a many uh, pronged <laughs> many splendored things many splendored uh, movement at different points in its history in different places there is a tension between for example the de- degree to which uh, popular people practice folk magic and the injunctions that official that the uh, priesthood would make against uh you know, dealing in any of that sort of thing because that is uh, supposedly that the work of the devil. There are periods where uh, the saints start to become sort of the equivalent of pagan gods that you then look for intercession for, and there are times when this is encouraged by the official priesthood because they are transitioning people from uh, a pagan way of life to the new converted way of life, and then as time goes on the uh, uh, priests, particularly the ones who uh, don't necessarily have a lot, lot else to do in their hands and want to you know, refine and purify the uh, worship and make it more theological in nature, uh, then start to uh, disapprove of that. And then, of course, when Protestantism comes along, the emphasis on saints is uh, radically reduced. And so uh, also you see a lot of differences when a faith starts to fission or split into two, then it becomes an issue of tribal identity of how much you obey your new priest, so that the relatively newer sect that springs out from the main sect is one that will probably be stricter, more theological, and will require more in the way of action or belief from its worshippers than the older, more conservative form, so that the priests of a newer form of a religion are going to want to have more purity tests. They're going to possibly that the uh, mythology that people are expected to believe in uh, requires a higher standard of belief, makes greater faith demands on them. And if you have a situation where one either full on completely different religion or even just a, a different uh, sect or denomination of a religion manages to conquer an area and impose its will on it. Then, as a sectarian move, the priests of that uh, order will then try to impose their theology on unwilling common folk, and that's where you start to get your pogroms and your persecutions and, and so forth. So, uh, Ken, I'm going to propose a uh, an imaginary fantasy world uh, religion, and we can then sort of look at ways in which there might be a dichotomy between the uh, official version that the player characters will run into when they go and talk to the priests and ask how their religion works, and then the common version that ordinary worshippers follow. So let's say uh, that um, um, be-
1: Before you take us all the way to fantasy world, I want to mention another couple of ways that the official religion and the popular religion interact that we haven't gotten to yet. And one of those is that there are times like people uh, believe happened in sort of the late... A Greek classical era, and is happening now in a lot of mainline Protestant seminaries, is that the official priesthood is less devout than the people, than the than the average worshipper, and so the priesthood in uh, ancient Greece or class- late classical Greece, and to some extent in mainstream Protestantism, are more agnostic. They're more open to a purely philosophical, as opposed to a theological or faith-based. Inquiry into the nature of the divine and emphasize, you know, sort of the facts on the ground of individual ethics as opposed to larger, you know, God driven scriptural and moral questions. But the people remain devoutly connected to, in the old days, you know, Zeus or uh, Aphrodite. And in the modern days, they're, you know, actively believing the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives and plenty of other things that. Conventional mainstream Protestant uh, seminaries have stopped teaching in favor of biblical exegesis and other sorts of Priesty type questions and then of course the other type of interaction between a popular religion and a official religion after the Officials conquer them is co-optation and you see the classic example of that is the Our Lady of Guadalupe um, The 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 Virgin uh, patroness of Mexico right after the Spanish conquest There was a full-blooded, or not an Aztec, but he was a Mexican Indian, uh, who had a vision at a a spot that was probably a sacred spot for his tribe, and he had a vision of a goddess that the sort of outward appearance had a lot to do with sort of the the vegetation goddess of the Aztec's Coatlicue, but it also has... Uh, you, you know, the, uh, the, 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 local priest was on the job and he said, Oh, you've had a vision of the Virgin Mary. Tell us about how much that vision that you had was like the Virgin Mary. And so the guy who had the vision, you know, tells him and the priest writes it all down or rather he writes down what he wants the archbishop to know in, um, uh, Spanish and he sends that off to the authorities. And before you know it, the guy's little village is a, is a pilgrimage site because it's where someone saw the Virgin. And so by taking what was you know, unless you believe that it was an actual apparition of the Virgin, which I suppose hundreds of millions of people do, which on the other hand might have been a standard sort of numinous experience that people in that village had been having for many years before Cortez showed up, he has, he, he co opted that element of the popular religion into a, a absolute buttress of the official religion. And so it was much faster and easier than simply, you know, having a, uh, a giant purge or whatever. If you say, oh, here's something that people really, really like in their old religion, let's just make it part of the new religion and then tell everyone that it was always part of the new religion until they believe it.
0: Right. And that is something that can sort of go in waves, too, that you can have a a culture where initially that sort of thing is encouraged and then once the uh, elite, which includes the religious elite, has more of a foothold, uh, they are then going to be less anxious to draw people in and and gain acceptance and instead they're going to uh, want to crack down and gain gain obedience so that something that they're uh, happy to draw parallels with in one century in the next century they may try and you know scrub out all evidence of that having been uh, done right so as a quick example let's envision that there is a seafaring fantasy culture uh, and Uh, Their god is the sea god, appropriately enough, and let's call him Urak. And uh, let's also envision that this uh, seafaring culture was a split from a larger culture, and they've gone off and they've had a couple of uh, centuries of their own development. And in the course of that, they have uh, taken the sea god of that original pantheon and started to envision him as more of sort of a... Uh, a, a dualistic, let's say, uh, patriarchal figure, and they've let the other uh, gods of the old religion uh, sort of degrade down into demon and, and enemy status. So among the elite of the priests of urak, uh what do you figure that they probably uh, believe and want to make sure that the uh, ordinary parishioners believe about urak
1: Well, I think if you're going to degrade the other gods down, and you began with a... a genuine, you know, polytheism, as opposed to a lot of individual separate cults, provide an explanation for why now Urak is in charge of everything. And so that can be uh, something like in the various Greek myths, there'd be the stories of people trying to rebel against Zeus and being smacked around by Zeus, the Typhonian rebellion, the Titans war against the Olympians, things like that. So I suspect that a myth will come around where Urak's brothers, all the other gods and goddesses are are mad at him for for some reason um like yurak is is trying to do something nice for people he's trying to provide fresh water to everyone in the world so that they can all enjoy delicious beverages and the other gods are like no 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 we're the only ones who get to have wine no one else in the world gets to have anything nice to drink and so then yurak is forced against his will to fight them and defeat them and so the the belief in yurak's victory has to become a sort of a core belief if you're gonna to explain to the other people why no, you don't worship um Sebnos anymore, uh the earth god, you worship Urak, the sea god. Uh but it's the same thing because the water that fertilizes your crops that Sebnos caused to grow is actually water that Urak made rain because Urak controls all the water in the world, including rain. And so that the other that's the other thing is you're you're beginning to add aspects to Urak. So you'd give Urak uh like Poseidon has uh Poseidon the Earth Shaker because he's the god of earthquakes, and he's the god of horses, Poseidon Hippios, so you add, a, like, a little thing to Yurak, and so he would be Yurak rainmaker, and a uh, blood pumper, so that he can take over the healing god's powers, right? Because your blood pumps just like water, just like the tides, it's all ocean, man, and so Yurak um, uh, can become the sky god because of the rain and thunder, and he can become the earth god because of fertilization and rain and earthquakes, and he can become... The healing God, and so you just figure out all the different reasons that all the other gods have to uh, become part of ach's worship, and you give Urach a cognomen or you give him a an ad- an attribute and maybe if you're a sort of a um, uh, uh, henotheistic model uh, where you can give Urach a little sub urax and so Urach can have a son who is, you know, your local guy in charge of healing, and it's Yurak's son, you know, um, Aburak, and he's now just takes over the healing cult of the old healing god, who is now, oh, he's a demon who's trying to give you poison. That's why you can't worship him. And so you have a whole bunch of different ways that Yurak is, is, is drawing all the other cults into his cult.
0: Right, and that can give you your fault line, then, and as you're fleshing out this uh, imaginary religion, underlines the difference between what the priests are saying. The priests are saying that all the gods are really Urak wearing different masks or members of the Urak family but you as the people on the ground uh, who are uh, probably your sailors or your dock workers or so forth, there are times when you feel that you need other things, you need healing, you need the fertility of the earth and there may be people in the community who are saying well, you know, Urak's uh, son, the, the rainmaker, he's He's okay normally, but when we've got this drought going on, uh we're going to have to actually, you know, remember the old ways because the the old ways as everybody knows it used to be better. There didn't used to be a drought there. Right. There's obviously, hey, there's mm-hmm. been a drought ever since we put Urak's son, the rainmaker in charge of that. Let's go back to the uh, uh ways of the original rain god. We can't tell the priests because the priests don't know anything. They, you know, they sit in their uh, in their temples, and they're uh, uh, smoking their incense and all of that sort of thing. But we know that we've got a... Dra- they're a
1: bunch of Sebnos
0: deniers. Yeah, so let's get let's invoke Sebnos. When the priests come along, we'll just, you know, uh, we'll mention your, your ex-son, the Rainmaker. But really, we'll be doing the older... Uh, magic that invokes Zebnos because he's the he's the original main guy. He really knew how to make rain. Uh, the the Uruk son, you know, regular times he's okay. But we're going to have to create a, a secret society uh, for secret rain magic and hide it from the priests. So when the priests come to town, we'll tell them everything's on the up and up. And then as you start to go along, say, like, oh well, now that we've got rain, the fertility of the soil is not what we wanted, and probably if The son of Urak, who's in charge of the rain, ain't that great. Well, uh, you know, the daughter of Urak, who's in charge of the Earth, is just a a reflection several generations away from the true Earth Mother. So again, let's create a secret society. We'll call it Urak's daughter, but really, we'll do our best to secretly preserve uh, the old ways. And of course, we're not really doing anything bad, because Urak obviously wants us to have crops that he can then, uh, that his merchant can then take and sell in other places, and he doesn't want us to starve. And just because the priests don't really understand how it works doesn't stop us from doing this. And if the priests ask, we'll just tell them that, you know, we just, everything's on the up and up, don't worry.
1: Or, conversely, the priests show up and everyone is worshipping someone that they say is Yurak and that they agree is Yurak and that they all are saying, yes, absolutely, Yurak. And when you look at the idol of Urak, it's not a male sea god, it's a female earth deity. And everyone's like, oh, hail the magnificent breasts of Urak, from which flows life-giving milk. And then the priests are like, we're pretty sure that Urak doesn't have magnificent breasts. And what was that about? And it's it's not even so much a secret society, it's that the people locally know that you've pretty much got to have the fertility worship in this way... And if people want you to call it your act, they're happy to do that. But the actual belief structure has has uh, it, got to be something else for it to to function. And the thing about doing this in a fantasy world is you can actually you, you can actually perform those tests, like in the Bible, where you know they have the the stuff on the altar, and a ball will set one on fire, and Yahweh will set one on fire, and whoever's altar gets set on fire is the real deal. And so you could have a cleric of of girl urak and a cleric of boy urak. And they both cast purify water or grow crops, and whichever one grows more crops is obviously the winner. Although, of course, if you have a leveled system, it's like, well, they were a higher level cleric of of the Earth Mother, so obviously they were better. I'm just a first level cleric of Yurak, and that's why Yurak didn't work through me the way that he ought to. That sort of um, empirical testing of of religious faith how do you how do you get around that in a world where you want it to remain a question uh, over which you can uh, disagree.
0: Well, you, you do the Glorantha thing and have the two people who totally disagree on the metaphysics both perform their magics and they both work. <laughs> and so the, the right. question is, you know, if they can both still argue that they're right, as people can still argue that they're right, that in in our world, that then gives you mm-hmm. something where you're able to, to still play with the sort of ideas of the, the sociology of, of religion and so forth. And so to quickly turn this into something that would be an adventure hook in a game, you could be the priest of Urak as a, you know, the standard, you know, member of an adventuring party and you suddenly go to a remote village and everyone's very excited. Oh, the priest of Urak is here. He can bless our new idol of Urak, the many breasted. And so your Mm -hmm. question then is, do you go back to report to your superiors that there's this community of uh, people uh, out in the hinterlands in fact well looks like there's a lot of different communities out here who have seem to be worshiping a really wonky Urak. Do you uh, go along with them because there's uh, you want to be able to stay in their village as a shelter from the uh, dungeon that you're going and looting or afterwards do you go and report them or maybe you are you know make friends with them and then uh, some of the you know the extreme, uh, hardline wing of your sect, members of that show up and ask, you know, what have you been doing tolerating these many-breasted idols of your act? Uh, you should be getting them to get with the program, and you'd better, uh, you and your adventuring buddies had better uh, get them into line, or there will be consequences by gum.
1: Well, how do you how do you work against type in, in an adventure like that? Because obviously, virtually every uh, Western gamer uh, faced with that dilemma will say, no, we'll let him go along. Everyone's uh, heal spells are still working. I've cast detect evil and no one here is evil. It's all fine. You can have no or many breasts, not a problem. How do you provide the sort of inner incentive that an actual Catholic priest going out into the hinterlands in the day or an actual uh, priest of, of Poseidon going into the hinterlands in the day and seeing something worshipped, you know, wrong would do? Do you do you penalize their magic? Do you how do you how do you draw them away from the easy, simple, uh, sort of American go everyone go along, get along, no established church response?
0: Well, I, I would have the the question of the the trade off would be: Do I stay in good with the official religion? Do I maintain my status with the hierarchy? I.e., can I get my guy raised from the dead? Uh, the next time one of these uh, one of my friends dies back in the big temple in the city, that's the only place you can raise right. somebody from the dead. And Unless
1: they've got an exciting resurrection magic out here in May. Uh, well, in maybe Ridge. they don't,
0: right? It's just a small community. You need a lot of priests to get up the magic to, to mm-hmm. uh, resurrect someone. So the, or, or some huge amount of gold or something. Yeah, and uh, the resurrections out here uh, in the hinterland, they sort of work. But Mm -hmm. that word, and you can't get them to explain what the sort of means in that. I think that alone would be Mm -hmm. enough to get, it's like, do I stay in good with the official side? Or am I the man of the people who says, no, I don't care. I'm not going to stick it to the man. uh, Because I think that there's a lot of of, uh, play in that of the, you know, the default assumption of the loosey-goosey, freedom-seeking, irresponsible hero of uh, Western uh, tropes versus, you know, the fact that the uh, real-life religi- religious authorities through most of history exercise a lot of authorities. And if you step out of line, mm-hmm. that causes you a bunch of different problems. And what happens if you get labeled as the heretic priest of many-breasted Urak when all you were doing is you weren't endorsing many-breasted Urak, you were just declining to uh, persecute. But, you know, the hardline priests back, uh, back home don't see it that way. And maybe there's a political struggle mm-hmm. that you need to get back into back at the temple to get the uh, fellow liberals uh, back in charge as the, as the hardliners come in and try to tighten it up. And, of course, there will be, uh, you know, economic and political reasons why the hardliners are doing uh, what they're doing.
1: Yeah, um, or religious reasons. Maybe Urak appeared to them and said, stop all this nonsense. Well, th- th- that's what they say, and they, um, say, <laughs> and
0: just, they might <laughs> yeah. be sincere. Well,
1: I mean, but, in a, again, in a world in which, you know, gods can appear to you, it, it's, it's less... It's less immediately ludicrous than it is to us if someone comes out and says, nope, Jesus personally told me what the tax rate should be, right? We'd say, I doubt that. But in, you know, in fantasy world, you know, your act might have personally appeared to someone and said, seriously. He he, he undoubtedly
0: did. And the question is whether uh, (laughs) those manifestations speak to a an objective truth or if they are uh, contradictory um well uh, one thing that's not contradictory is our need to get out of this segment and so uh, we will uh, board <laughs> the sacred bark of uh, Urak and paddle on over to that self-same segment How often have you said to yourself, if only there were an equivalent to Robin Laws' brilliant, award-winning, improvisational Armitage Files campaign, only for Knight's Black Agents, Ken Heights' vampire spy thriller RPG.
1: More often than you might believe, Robin. So often, in fact, that I went and made one called the Dracula Dossier and it's kickstarting soon! You
0: interest me strangely. That's just
1: how I interest, I suppose.
0: Does this dossier have any connection to Bram Stoker's immortal novel? It's not a novel, Robin.
1: It was the after-action report of Operation Edom, the first 1894 attempt by British intelligence to recruit a vampire. We've unredacted Stoker's first draft of that report, and now the truth can be told.
0: Told in the form of a collaborative, improvisational spy thriller gaming, through the hyper-surveilled streets of London and the desolate Carpathian Mountains, I devoutly hope. Your hopes
1: are answered. You play burned spies who follow the clues in the Dracula dossier to hunt and kill Dracula for good 120 years later.
0: Clues, you say? Clues, I
1: do say. Not just the sources and methods Stoker's first draft revealed, but annotations to the dossier made by three generations of MI6 analysts tracking Edom's operations since then a doomed commando operation in World War II Romania, a mysterious mole hunt in 1970s London, and the dubious 2005 decision to unleash Dracula on Al-Qaeda as the ultimate deniable asset.
0: And since everyone knows the story of Dracula, players can jump into the action anywhere they want, investigate any lead, and find danger and mystery waiting for them.
1: Danger, mystery, dozens of NPCs with many possible agendas, possibly vampirized organizations from the Romanian secret police on down, locations from Carfax to a CIA black site in Bucharest, and maybe even a magic item or two, if that's the kind of thing
0: you want to look for in your game, of course. So, to sum up, the Dracula Dossier is a fully improvisational Knights Black Agents campaign built around the secret history of both Stoker's novel and of European espionage, full of dangerous encounters and subtle conspiracies, and it's kickstarting soon.
1: And just like Edom did in 1894, I've brought in an Irish writer to do all the hard bit, <laughs> Pelgrain superstar Gareth Ryder Hanrahan is busily writing up a stretch goal or three even as we speak.
0: You, Gareth, Bragg, Stoker, Van Helsing, Count Dracula, could this game get any more bloated with blood and or awesomeness?
1: You'll have to follow the clues to the Kickstarter page to find out, Robin. Clues like Pelgrain, Dracula, Dossier. But bring an appetite for adventure because we're cooking with garlic.
0: Among My Many Hats is the segment in which the veiled self-promotion of the rest of the podcast is unveiled, and uh, one of us talks about an upcoming uh, project that we want to have you know more about, and this is one that you just heard about in the ad immediately preceding this, and this is Ken's Dracula dossier project for Pelgrane Press uh, in tandem with the estimable Gareth Ryder-Hanrahan. They are kickstarting this soon, depending on when you're listening to this soon, maybe currently, or perhaps in the distant, (laughs) irretrievable past. So what can you... uh, I guess we need to go beyond the basic concept, which the ad uh, lines up uh, pretty well. So perhaps you could start by telling us what the genesis of this idea is. What uh, drew you in to want to spend all of this time uh, and effort on this particular idea, as opposed to the many other ones on your... uh, circling your head. I mean, part
1: of it is just the notion that Dracula is the is the great white whale for anyone who's writing about proper vampires. And if you haven't taken on Dracula, you aren't really standing to be measured against the best ever vampire uh, thing. And Bram Stoker's uh, novel is still to this day hugely influential. It's hugely powerful. It, it's still a great read. It's going to be in print as long as there is print and in um, as long as there are prepositions, Dracula will be in uh right in front of one of them. And so I, I think that if you're if you're doing anything about vampires, and I did, you know, an awful lot about vampires on the way into Nice Black Agents, that you start thinking about Dracula and how to make Dracula work. And once I had the idea that Dracula really looks like a recruitment operation gone horribly wrong, then the rest of it sort of fell together. The notion of it being a generational story as opposed to one sequel actually came out of a situation in sort of borderline fringe UFO lore in which there was a book by Morris Jessup called The Case for the UFO. And Morris Jessup was a guy who had a lot of problems. He's one of the uh, sort of ground zero guys for sightings of men in black. So he probably had some sort of um, uh, persecution uh, mania. He was... uh, personally unstable, and he wound up committing suicide after publishing the case for the UFO. And this uh, minor tragedy onto which conspiracy theorists hung their conspiracies sort of stayed there until Vero Press allegedly produced a edition of Case for the UFO with three sets of annotations in it and purporting to be the annotations of CIA or Majestic 12 or whatever kind of secret government, Men in Black, analysts, talking about what Jessup had got right, what he'd got wrong, sort of arguing with each other. And the notion that you would have a source document that is then argued over by people whose agenda you don't know, became sort of a a, a seed crystal, and I thought, wouldn't it be fun to do that with Dracula? To have three separate generations of MI6, try and figure out what went wrong, and try and figure out what's going on, and rather than just have it be you know that every uh, 40 years someone else looks at the book. I wanted to tie it into um, to things that were exciting about about British spycraft. So the natural periods became World War II, when you have the SOE, you know, going around setting Europe ablaze. The 70s, when you've got the great mole hunts and Smiley esque uh, golden age or or grayish uh, bright gray age, whatever you want to call it, and then now the the war on terror. And so those three questions drove the sort of backstory of of my project edem the the secret mi6 vampire recruiting controlling and sometimes hunting directorate
0: now uh, this is inspired uh, in part by uh, the armitage files which is my improvisational campaign for trailer cthulhu and the idea behind that was that in cthulhu gaming the basic currency of play is the handout and so in that book you give your players a uh, a series of weirdo letters that have uh, basically dropped through a hole in time from the near future, and you then have to research elements that you find in those documents in order to prevent that horrible future from occurring, or at least in in hopes of doing that. And so, uh, the play in that is you get your handout and you decide which of the different leads on the handout you want to follow, and when you've Uh, comb through everything you think is interesting. In that handout, another one appears. So in uh, the Dracula dossier, how does a a session of play use the materials in the game to generate play?
1: Like you say, the, the core of this is still the handout. It's still the Dracula dossier with the annotations. And since the core of the handout is the novel Dracula, which the odds are more than one person at the table has read, and almost certainly everyone at the table is familiar enough to know what they want to look for. They know the names Van Helsing. They know the name, uh, they, they know Transylvania. They, maybe they know Seward and Mina. Uh, and, and so they, they have things to hook onto in the narrative. They find in the annotations, there are clues and things that are mentioned, and then they will go and see what they can see about those locations or those people or those organizations. And, In the body of uh, the director's handbook, there are descriptions of those places, those people, those organizations, and much like in Armitage Files, each thing that you might investigate has different possible true states. So they might be an innocent uh, victim of all this, they might be working for Edom, or they might be minions of Dracula. And so as the players are inspired by aspects of the novel or aspects of the extra bits we added to the novel to make it more of a after-action report, then they follow the bits that inspire them into the modern day and, and find out, you know, what's on the site of, of Carfax, or where is Castle Dracula exactly, or is um uh, Dr. Seward's Asylum still around, or what about that uh, cartage company that Dracula hired to send all of his stuff all over London? Are they still around? about What about his old... Uh, bolt holes and and they start following the leads in the in the annotations that point them to the various uh encounters and uh, exciting bits
0: and so is there a particular exciting bit that you think most groups of players will gravitate to? is there sort of greatest hits out of the novel that you uh, expect them to put high on their priority list?
1: Well, I mean I think that there are certain things that everyone is going to want to look for and that are you know sort of gravitational nodes, I would say. And th- those are things like Castle Dracula. Everyone's going to want to find out about Castle Dracula. I don't think you're going to have necessarily a, a campaign where everyone says, I'm pretty sure that Dracula is still hiding in London, that the whole Castle Dracula was a fake-out. And so, I mean, if you do that, there's support in there to play it. But so we we wind up, you know, really, you know, uh, you know painting a lot of stuff in Romania and, and putting things there. I think that a lot of people are uh, very interested in things like you know van Helsing and so we, we you know the special garlic that he uses and the and the special um, uh, his, his uh, vampire hunting kit I think that's going to show up and then we're going to add things from sort of the larger lore of Dracula from the original Stoker's original notes things like uh, the portrait of Dracula that an artist named Francis a town paints in one of Stoker's outlines that never gets used in the novel but if you are a fan of of the sort of arcana of the novel, you may want to find that portrait. And then there's things like earthquake machines and and magic books that every gamer group is going to want to look for regardless. And the possibility of, uh, CIA operations, because we got 1940, we've got the possible Nazi vampire program, which I think a lot of, uh, gamers may find themselves irresistibly drawn to because of the way that things work. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, I mean, the novel itself is, is full of all kinds of rich weirdness, and anyone who reads the novel is going to come across something and say, hold on, wait a he does what? And at those points, you know, where Dracula, like, you know, abstracts a wolf from the London Zoo, we're going to have pointers to what's going on at the London Zoo now, and, and are there wolves around, and, and things like that.
0: Now, uh, normally you, you wouldn't do this, but since there's a, a Kickstarter in the wings, and you uh, are feeling especially solicitous, uh, what tip would you give to the player who is listening to this episode whose GM does not know they're listening. What little inside uh, tip for success would you, uh, would you give them?
1: Uh, my inside tip for success to the players is to be very, very careful about opening coffins. <laughs> and that's not just because it's always a good idea to be very, very careful about opening coffins. Dracula has some specific... Uh, moves in his particular vampyramid. If the va- the pyramid from Night's Block Agents, we we did a special, specific one for Dracula.
0: Right, and the vampyramid, for uh, people who don't know the term, is the org chart of the vampires who are trying to kill you.
1: And, and no, it's not their org chart, that's the
0: cons pyramid. Oh, well, I'm glad we clarified this.
1: The vampyramid is the possible responses that the vampire makes to a threat. Uh huh. Right? And so, you know, at, at level one, an ordinary vampire you know, shadows you on level one, Dracula invades your dreams and drains all your secrets. So it's, so it's a much uh, more intense job of, of work. So you want to approach Dracula obliquely, not, you know, head on, and certainly uh, be very, very careful opening coffins. I, I cannot stress that too so much.
0: So what was the most difficult thing in putting this uh, project together?
1: I, I think the most difficult thing was working out what order to do everything in because I thought in my innocence that I would start by expanding the novel and then we would do the annotations and then we would do all the clues that those annotations spawned. But we rapidly realized that that was exactly the wrong order to do. And I say rapidly, it took months. Uh, we realized that was the wrong order to do things in. And that what you need to do is have the clues so that you can do annotations that point to the clues that that exist, because otherwise you'll wind up you, you'll you'll wind up completely uncontrolled with with no idea of of what you're doing, and so we needed to write clues that multiple annotations could point to, and we needed to give sort of um, uh, high value uh, ideas so that we didn't then have a clue that's pointing off somewhere where we don't really have any notion of of, of where it goes, and and we wasted everyone's time, and so you have to write exciting encounters first. Then do annotations inside that and only at the very end of the process uh, unredact Dracula and add stuff to Dracula that uh, specifically points to the things that we've already written.
0: Now for the Kickstarter itself, uh, one of the things I always say is that a Kickstarter is not just a pre-order process, it's a performance, it's an entertainment event in itself. Uh, Anything you can say at this point about the uh, fun uh, things that will uh, redound to you if you take part in the Kickstarter?
1: Well, uh, one of the things is that we're going to have a race across uh, Europe, or at least a race across the Kickstarter graph, between uh, Mina and Van Helsing, and whichever one of them wins the race, in the the sense of whichever one has the most backers, that will be whose voice you will hear on the wax cylinder. Uh, And there will be a wax cylinder uh, clue written into the game, and we will get an MP3 recording of what's on that wax cylinder, and depending on who wins... That will depend on who made the recording and whoever makes the recording, obviously, that's going to depend on what secrets they reveal. So it'll be kind of a fun little way for people to customize the game the way that they want it to to come about. And also to either fight the good fight for uh, vampire killing or put a thumb in the eye of patriarchal Dutch incompetent doctoring, whichever they'd rather.
0: Well, uh so uh listeners as you get ready to uh wait for this Kickstarter to uh launch, you can start thinking whether you are Team Van Helsing or Team Mina.
1: And I and I want to emphasize that all of your other rivalries can fit into this one. So, and I'm not going to tell you which is which, but whichever side you back in every other controversy will back one side. So, that that's just the magic of Dracula. That's great literature.
0: Okay. Well, on that note, I think we have well described this uh, particular Romanian hat of yours and can move on to our next segment.
1: This episode is also brought to you by Arknight.
0: Now crowdfunding their flat plastic miniatures at a Kickstarter near you.
1: We're talking a brand new type of tabletop RPG mini.
0: You get way more minis for your money than figure sets produced in the standard formats.
1: They're made from transparent plastic with no white edges.
0: The front and back of each mini is drawn in the same silhouette. So you sort of look through the plastic transparency and you see transparentness. (laughs) Almost as if. Although they're flat, they don't lay flat. They stand to attention, waiting for the player characters to mow them down on plastic bases.
1: As of this recording, they've already funded and have left stretch goal number one in the dust.
0: And since we record these ads ahead of time, they may well be further than that.
1: As of Stretch Goal 2, the deal will score you 310 minis for $75, including bases and domestic shipping.
0: Arknight plans on doing all sorts of themed packs, including sci-fi, pulp, and cyberpunk, over the fullness of time.
1: Are you a retailer? They have retail kits!
0: Are you a publisher? Arknight wants to work with you to produce game pieces for you using this process.
1: So rush on over to Kickstarter to check out flat plastic miniatures from Arknight, funding until November 26th, 2014. The sound of uh, things crackling in oil, the feeling of power that you get from smashing lemongrass with the back end of your cleaver, the smell of pulled pork wafting throughout the house, tells you that we are entering that most delectable of huts, the food hut. And uh, having entered the food hut, we will now take a right about from the kitchen and head for the bookshelf, because we're here to talk about food writing. Robin, open us up uh, the front of our book and read the foreword.
0: Right, so I thought we would give some uh, recommendations of our favorite examples of food writing. This is as opposed to cookbooks, so uh, I think one of my examples does have some recipes in it. It's kind of hard to avoid, even in the most
1: food writing of food writing. Someone will just break out into recipes at at any moment. But, yeah, but not
0: cookbooks. Right, yeah, there's a distinction between something that's primarily recipes and something that occasionally has a recipe in it. There's a
1: recipe in Dracula, for God's sake.
0: There you go. What I look for in food writing is something that not only... Uh, talks about the food itself but the connection between food and the human experience so a lot of the ones that i'm mentioning are ones that either evoke a sense of place or uh, connect food to sort of personal uh, memoir and so there are things that both taught me a lot about food but also left a powerful emotional impression on me and so the first one i want to mention is corked by Catherine burrell she's a uh, Canadian writer. Her father is French, and the book chronicles her attempt to get closer to her father by going on a tour of all of France's wine regions. And the relationship with the father is fraught because uh, the uh, father, who's a former hotelier, turns out to be someone who really enjoys throwing tantrums (laughs) in establishments where he is supposed to be catered to so he's one of those horrible people who throws a wobbly whenever the server uh, or makes a mistake or and of course he's just sitting there waiting for a mistake to be made so the poor servers and restaurateurs have no possible way not to enrage him he's going there planning (laughs) to be enraged and to uh, uh, flip out and of course she's um, mortified by this. Uh, so her dad has sort of a, a Jekyll Hyde side to himself, and she's trying to get closer to the Jekyll side and to learn more about wine, and uh, it was sort of from this book that I learned that the Cote d'Iron region in France is uh, my favorite, and why it is my favorite, because the wines are as uh, uh, she says, quoting her father, cakey. Uh, but it, so it gives you uh, both a history, uh, or not a history, but a geography and profile of all the different wine regions, but also tells this personal story and uh, leads her to some revelations about her father's past that both change her perception of him and create more of an understanding of why he is the way he is. So I'd strongly recommend uh, corked by Catherine Burrell and that's B O R E L. Okay.
1: My favorite food writer is is probably uh, Calvin Trillin who is written all kinds of things and his writing uh, his food writing is called the Tummy Trilogy. Uh, it is American Fried, uh, Alice Let's Eat, and Third Helpings. And basically, it's just uh, Calvin Trillin going around and eating things. And he is uh, a, a very uh, gifted essayist. Uh, he has written a ton of stuff. Uh, he is, I think he's got uh, two columns for the Nation magazine that is that have run since the 70s. And whatever you think about the Nation, um, they uh, used to know pro style pretty well. And so his uh, prose style is certainly uh, delectable and he enjoys food, which I think is something that not as many food writers as you would think actually do. And he enjoys, you know, proper food. He has, you know, paroxysms of delight at you know a well-made hamburger, which you don't see as, as often. Yeah, in, his, in... his
0: essay on barbecue is, I think, possibly <laughs> seminal in the field <laughs> right. of writing uh, uh, yeah.
1: If you if you read you know two or three Calvin Trillin essays, and you do not have an appetite both for whatever he was writing about and for a lot more Calvin Trillin, then this may not be the the, the hut for you to be in, and you may have to uh, wait for us at the next hut. But I I find Calvin Trillin endlessly delightful, and his food writing. Uh, does what all food writing should do. It, it entertains you and it makes you want to eat the thing that the food writing was about. It works on on sort of the intellectual and the gustatory simultaneously. And I and I think that he's also just a terrific writer. I think that the sort of short essay is an underrated uh, literary form. And when you're as good at it as Calvin Trillin, you deserve people to um uh, to uh to, to say nice things about you.
0: He has this wonderful rye uh, writing style, and I would, uh, although I didn't list him, I would certainly, it was a omission on my part, so I thoroughly second that nomination. Uh, the next one I want to mention is The Sweet Life in Paris by David Leibovitz. Uh, he is a pastry chef who moves from uh, San Francisco, where he was associated with Alice Waters, to uh, Paris, uh, and uh, it's uh, partly about Uh, pastry (laughs) and you know there are few other cities in the world that you would associate more with uh, pastry than paris maybe vienna Uh, yes but also his experiences as an american trying to come to terms with the everyday craziness of living in paris which is a city that nothing seems to work the way you think it ought to work if you're uh, an american but instead works according to its own arcane rules where uh, all of the institutions are designed for the convenience and benefit of the people running them, not the people that they putatively uh, serve. And uh, so it covers everything from uh, the baffling way that foot traffic works in uh, Paris, where you uh, just bash into people as much as you Mm -hmm. want, to the uh, horrors and difficulties of trying to return an item at a department store, and uh, all of these writing about uh, pastry and pastry making that makes you uh, really want to uh, eat uh, at least uh, five to ten pounds (laughs) worth of it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Uh, In that sort of um, food uh, writing and memoir combined, and again, this is going to be a classic, but uh, there are people who don't know the classics in every branch. Uh, MFK Fisher, of course... Uh, talking about her, uh, she was one of the first people to move to Provence for the food and then tell Americans about it. It was, I guess, Europe, British people had been doing it for 200 years. But <laughs> the the first one to have a good American, um, uh, to, to be an American to do it, was M.F.K. Fisher, uh, Mary Frances Kennedy Fisher. And she, she was sort of a, a, a practical cook. Uh, she wrote a book called How to Cook a Wolf During... World War II uh, to help people deal with rationing. And so she has, as you can tell from that, she has sort of a a wry sense of humor as well. But her stuff is is much more memoir-y in the sense of, uh, wouldn't it be nice to go off to Provence and ignore everything and just eat? Uh, As opposed to, isn't it great fun to be engaged with everything around you while you're stuffing yourself like Calvin Trillin is? This is more of a a sort of a, a, a sense of place, uh, uh, stuff that she wrote about. And so she she has uh, her memoirs uh, about various places uh, in the south of France that she lived. She didn't just live in Provence. She lived in Dijon for a while. And so those books are... Uh, with, with every memoir, if you don't like the person writing the memoir, then there's nothing you can do about it. So if you start an MFK Fisher book and you don't like her voice, it's not going to work for you. You're not going to get anything out of it. But I think that most people have been well served and she will also uh convince uh you that you also want to go to Provence and do nothing but tell people about what great food you've been having.
0: And so the starting point on MFK Fisher, is that the MFK Fisher reader in your opinion, or is there another one that you would start people with?
1: I think the reader is good if you um if you just start, you know, and you're saying, Do I want to read more from this uh from, from this author? I think another way is just to to start with her uh, her, her first uh, Provence memoir and, and see what you think, right? The a map of another town. I You know, again, I, I think Fisher, as opposed to Trillin, also works better at longer uh, lengths. So the uh, the reader is going to cut stuff up. The next title
0: I will mention is The Man Who Ate the World by Jay Rayner. That's R-A-Y-N-E-R. And he's a uh, British food writer. Uh, and his mission in this book is he convinces his publisher to give him enough of a budget to go to five of the world's most opulent <laughs> food towns and just eat, uh, with complete abandon at the utter high end level, uh, that, uh, most people could never afford and that he could never afford without this, uh, premise of this book proposal. And so this is definitely for those listeners who are, are not in the, uh, uh, that this is an aspirational book that basically satisfies you by telling you that you don't want to actually do this, (laughs) Um, and you probably don't want to go to a number of the towns that he uh, mentions. So this is a a sense of place book. He covers Moscow, London, Vegas, uh, Tokyo, and Dubai. And uh, although he doesn't succeed in making uh, Paris look horrible, he does definitely succeed in making uh, japan seem bewildering and there's a great passage on how nobody in japan knows how to get to different places in japan during due to the intricacies of the uh, address system that is just completely confusing and people only know their own little neighborhoods and that if you want to go to you know an obscure little restaurant that you've made arrangements to go to and it's in a different part of the city than your hotel that that on its own is an odyssean journey to try and get there um the section on uh, russia and the craziness of uh, moscow's money scene and the sense of display and uh how uh you know the rich food is just sort of maybe item seven on why people go to a particular uh, restaurant or not is uh, wonderful and, and surreal and uh, so i would strongly recommend that as a, a great example of sense of place food writing
1: Um, While we're talking about uh, sort of uh, basics and classics and uh, the food essay, uh, if you haven't read uh, The Man Who Ate Everything, Jeffrey Steingarten, uh, who writes a lot of uh, food columns for various uh, nice magazines...
0: You looked through the microphone to see the next item on my list.
1: Did I? I'm so clever. Anyway, he... Is uh, he's not Calvin Trillin? He will never make you. He will never be Calvin
0: Trillin. But only Calvin Trillin can be Calvin Trillin. So that's no knock on
1: anyone. But he will make you briefly not mind that he is not Calvin Trillin, which almost no uh, uh, humorous or somewhat uh, lighthearted food essayist manages to do, in my experience. And so I, uh, I, I very much enjoyed the man who ate everything. Uh, he has a sequel. Uh, which is another collection of of his essays called "It Must Have Been Something I Ate," which I have not read, but I assume is also super good. Um, and so I would say uh, Jeffrey Steingarten is is a, is a way to go. And he, uh, unlike Trillin, uh, works for magazines with budgets, and so he gets to go to all manner of of fancy uh, places and and eat things. And so that's uh that's you know uh, Trillin is is good fashioned American populist uh, cuisine with the occasional splurge somewhere. And Steingarten is a guy with uh, an expense account from Vogue. And so he gets to go to to nicer restaurants. It's not...
0: Right, uh, and to... and its focus isn't just on restaurants, but also on cooking. Right, yeah. uh, in a way that Cal- that Calvin Trillin doesn't. Mm-hmm. He will his essays tend to be sort of ingredient focused So he'll do uh, one on rice, or one on you know what is the perfect French fry, and how do you create it, and,
1: and what kind of sausages uh, don't you know about yet, and what can you do with them type stuff.
0: Right, so he and he'll do experiments in his kitchen, and then he'll talk to experts. And uh, so I learned a, a bunch of stuff from him like the, you know, that you can cook every kind of rice like basmati rice, which I think was a, a tip I gave previously. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I especially uh, treasure Jeffrey Steingarten because the person who recommended uh, him to me was Jack Vance. Oh, so wow. That was pretty There awesome. you go. It's a hot if Yes. Um, well, I guess uh, just as one final uh, thing, there's also a whole genre of food writing that is about uh, the natural history and uh, biology and, uh, and also political history of ingredients, and there's a whole bunch of those. We could probably do a whole segment just on those, but as a stand-in for that, I would nominate The Fruit Hunters by Adam Gallner, uh, which uh, goes into the whole uh, history of all the fruits uh, that we eat and when they came into popular use, and uh, most of them, uh, as just an edible thing that you would eat by itself, are actually pretty late Uh, You know, if you see, if you write about uh, the Roman Empire and you write about somebody eating an apple, that's actually anachronistic. Mm -hmm. Um, Bananas are uh, pretty darn recent and were inedible until uh, bread and bread and bread to get these gigantic seeds out of them. Um, And Golner also sort of covers the people who scour the world now looking for exotic fruits that can somehow also go through that process and become domesticated commercial projects so, or products so there's a lot of interesting uh, cultural and, and geography in that as well and so that's the fruit hunters by Adam Galner. okay and uh, I think that's uh, a good list to get people started on their food bookshelves and we can uh, pronounce ourselves victorious and perhaps hungry <laughs> and move on to our final segment As we stagger up the creaky cobweb steps, we look up way up to the portrait of Madame Blavatsky. We turn a corner. We settle into a creaky leather chair opposite the consulting occultist. And this time the consulting occultist is going to consult with us about Margaret Murray. So, uh, Ken, can you start off by uh, giving us the 101? Who was Margaret Murray?
1: Okay. Margaret Murray was an Egyptologist. Uh, she was... um. Not quite self-trained, she worked very closely with Sir Flinders Petrie, who was basically the top guy in Egyptology, uh, virtually invented the field by himself.
0: So, just as a completely unrelated sidebar, when people talk about something being smashed to Flinders, are we referring to something that Sir Flinders Petrie would do to uh, artifacts? A number
1: of uh, Sir Flinders Petrie's rivals made that very joke. The, the the term predates him, but he was a uh, he was an early archaeologist, and things happen. There is a one of the funniest lines that I've ever read about Egyptology is from Will Cuppy, of course, uh, who says something like, "It is thanks to the tireless labor and de- dedicated uh, scholarship of Sir Flinders Petrie that the ornately carved sarcophagus of Pharaoh Amenhotep now lies at the bottom of the Mediterranean." <laughs>
0: So, Margaret Murray was a, a, a quasi-self-trained Egyptologist who worked with Sir Flinders Petrie.
1: Right, and she, be- and she got a, a, a chair in Egyptology at the University College of London. And, of course, as a Egyptologist, became most famous and cared most about her theory of medieval European witchcraft. And if you are saying, why on earth would an Egyptologist write about medieval European witchcraft? The answer is World War I. Uh, she's not able to go to, uh, Egypt and do any digs because there's a bunch of war going on. So she cast about for something else to do and decided to write about witchcraft. And at this point, she had been, a uh, feminist for some time because she had been out dealing with British academics under hot sun, which I think would make anyone a feminist.
0: <laughs> that would do it right there. It didn't <laughs> and need Gamergate for that.
1: And decided to, um, uh, to look. At the um, uh, world of, of witchcraft, from a explicitly feminist perspective, she was not the first person to do so. In fact, uh, L. Frank Baum's mother-in-law, I believe, was the first person to do so, which is why there are good witches in Oz. But Margaret Murray was the first person to do so with a bunch of uh, witch trial manuscripts to hand, and so she decided that the witch cult that was persecuted by uh, the Catholic Church and then later the Protestant Church between, say... Uh, 1300 and 1700, to give it sort of broad angles here, was in fact not just a bunch of nice old ladies up to no evil, it was in fact a global pagan religion. And it was a pagan religion that had survived all the way from the Neolithic era and uh, had been sort of operating, as our previous segment alluded to, as the true popular religion in Christian lands forever and ever and ever, despite what those citified priests think. Them, them and their dumb Urak. With their dumb Urak god. And it was in order to break this genuinely popular, genuinely majority, secret feminist religion that had been transmitted down from Neolithic times that the witch trials existed, and that, that their job was to destroy this religion and actually supplant it with Christianity. And she wrote that in a book called uh, The Witch Cult in Western Europe which uh went on to sell virtually no copies, but got her the uh, opportunity to write the article on witchcraft in the Encyclopedia Britannica, and that, I think, is what really sort of drove it home, because everyone who looked up witchcraft in the Britannica did not know that what they were getting was, to put it as politely as I possibly can, totally unfounded crankery. And uh, she then doubled down with various sequels to the witch cult after anthropologists reviewed her book uh, unfavorably in direct proportion to how much they knew about the witch cult in western Europe and so she then wrote The God of the Witches was uh, I think the next one that she did and then uh, after that she had a final one called The Divine King of England in which she said that the kings of England going back to uh, William Rufus had been witches and that all the British royal family was was a bunch of witch cultists and good for them. (laughs) <laughs> and uh and and she she died at you know I don't know what it was like 101 something like that she she died at 100 actually and uh was very much beloved by all of her uh colleagues in Egyptology and they just sort of agreed amongst themselves not to discuss her witchcraft craziness because she was doing a perfectly good job teaching Egyptology and and making things better for female students at UCL and uh so they just sort of ignored it and If it hadn't been for that pesky Britannic article, I think everyone would have ignored it. But H.P. Lovecraft, God bless him, ran into the witch cult in Western Europe and uh, fell in love with the thesis because it was everything he always wanted to believe. And it was for, you know, its time, not immediately uh, ridiculous anthropology. It was only conclusively demolished by the publication of all of the witch trial transcripts that Margaret Murray had been depending on, in which you got to read the entire context and discovered that she had been at best selective and at worst openly deceptive in her choice of supporting material.
0: Now, uh, Margaret Murray has had a huge uh, impact, perhaps even more of an impact than the various other uh, cranks that we've talked about in that uh, the idea of the sort of ancient feminist religion being uh, Wicca has suffused uh, kind of the new age movements and the new pagan revivals. So, How great an influence would you say that she has over uh, the occult scene today?
1: She has less of one now than she did uh, even when I started reading about witchcraft. When I started reading about witchcraft, you could see New Age and pagan publishers, even the real ones, even the serious ones, uncritically present Murray's thesis. And thanks to the very uh, thorough and very sympathetic, uh, this is the first debunking of Murray to be done by someone who is not angry at her for being a bad anthropologist uh, a guy a historian named ronald hutton wrote a book called uh, the triumph of the moon which was a history of, of wicca in which he sort of unpacks margaret murray and and you know makes it very cl- clear that she was wrong about everything but doesn't do it from a and she deserved what she got for being a big mouthy loudmouth pagan woman and is more of a and this is just the kind of thing that happens when you found a religion you got stuff wrong you know we don't believe in everything that Joseph Smith wrote but we're not going to go around making fun of Mormons either that type of an approach right and so his approach i think created enough space within the the neo pagan community that they could come to terms with the fact that the sort of founding godmother of their of their uh of the historical component of their religion was uh, as a historian a pretty fair egyptologist and i think that they that, that that is now sort of uh, defused a lot of the uh, very, very, I don't want to say vitriolic, but the very, very uh, intense pro-Murrayite you bunch of men are breaking our, our our religion just like in the Burning Times nonsense that I was reading back when I started reading uh, Witches.
0: Right, because if the provenance of your beliefs change, you can just say, uh, well, we have uh, developed these uh, these beliefs now and maybe they don't have the the long heritage it was spoken of, but they're still valid and true for us. And uh, however they came about, uh, they work and uh, we're happy with them.
1: Yeah, and, and there are people who push back against Hutton, which I don't recommend myself, but who say that Hutton, who is, after all, a history of British religion, doesn't know anything about Italian witchcraft, and that there is another proto-witch manuscript called Aradia, which was written by a English adventurer in Italy uh, named Charles Leland, and he said that he found this in the home of an actual honest-to-God witch from Italy, and it has numbers of the same sorts of theses. And uh, Carlo Ginsberg, from sort of a psychological uh, viewpoint, says that there is a psychological core to the witchcraft experience that people like Hutton uh, dismiss, that the belief in this uh, ecstatic uh, witch travel is um, something that just happens to people in a religious state, especially a religious state that is helped along by hallucinogens, and that the things that they're describing as their practices show up in a lot of other anthropological reports from all over Europe, and so maybe there was a a tradition, if not an actual culture, of use these specific herbs at this specific time, and you'll get uh, witchcraft, which is... You know, I, I, you know, sort of three sides around the barn to get back to Murray, and it's certainly not an unbroken tradition of uh, mothers and daughters passing things down through the royal lineage of England, which is where Margaret Murray was by the end of it.
0: Um, so, if you're going to uh, create a scenario or write a story in which the lead characters meet and interact with Margaret Murray and something cool happens, uh, what period would you choose to do that, and what would be the uh, the premise of the adventure?
1: Well, there's there's a there's I mean cool things happening around Margaret Murray, uh, you can either do it while she's out doing excavating stuff, which I think is is the fun thing to do, right? It, it's always fun to meet someone You know, either before she publishes uh, her book in 1921, and so you meet her in Egypt maybe before the war, but I think it's more fun if she's been doing her research, she's maybe published her first book, and she's doing excavations in Malta, she's doing ex- excavations in Menorca, she's doing excavations in sort of the Mediterranean world, In the 20s and 30s, and I think that's an ideal Trail of Cthulhu moment uh, to meet her. But it also might be fun to meet her in the 60s and 70s, as the religion that she somewhat accidentally founded is blowing up. And she's just a nice lady who is pottering along doing her research and whatnot, and uh, is—not the 60s and 70s, because she's dead in 1963 or 62— But in the the 50s, maybe, you can meet her in various uh, English academic circles in which you can have sort of a a Rosemary's Baby secret witchcraft background behind the the bland post-war consensus of Britain.
0: And uh, do you make her an antagonist or do you have her be the uh, the cavalry who uh, shows up to uh, work the healing uh, matriarchal uh, magic to uh, save the bacon of your PCs when needed?
1: I think that Margaret Murray, because her entire reputation is is being pretty nice, although there is one record of one of her academic uh, uh, friends being over at her house and asking her what she's cooking, and she says, oh, I'm cooking up a curse for some guy in her department who she was mad at, and he had a bad thing happen to him, and they were like, note to self, don't get Margaret Murray angry at you. I, I think that you could um, you could cast her as sort of the seemingly friendly, helpful academic who is actually in league with the bad guys, which is one sort of standard response, or you could make her the sort of uh, Merlin figure who tells you what's coming up but for one or another reason can't help you with it because uh, she's dead or busy or she's made a a pledge to Diana never to get involved in magic again after that horrible thing that happened in Malta or or something that you you either make her Merlin or you make her the, 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 the secret villain, the Columbo bad guy.
0: Okay, well, I think uh, that well gives everyone their 101 on Margaret Murray, and we can declare another podcast ready for their exit strategy.
1: Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors.
0: Atlas Games. Ark Knight. Dork Tower.
1: Pro Fantasy Software.
0: And Ken's Dracula Dossier Kickstarter for Palgrain Press.
1: Music, as always, is by James Semple.
0: Toss us some artisanal breadsticks by hitting the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com.
1: Join such worthies as returning patron Andrew Miller.
0: Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter book, or Vampire After Action report by advertising with us.
1: Grab the rate sheet at our site.
0: On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height.
1: And he's at Robin D. Laws.
0: See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.